0: The topic of today's uh, Dhamma talk is uh, the unfolding of uh, wisdom and uh, you will remember from the very introductory talk on July 6th The verse that the Buddha spoke in reply to a question raised by a deva, a young deva by the name of Chandana. And the question was who crosses over the flood? And to this, you know, the Buddha you know, replies, as is recorded in Samyutta Nikaya you know, 1.15, One, always perfect in virtue, endowed with wisdom, well concentrated, and then one energetic and resolute, crosses the flood so hard to cross. Now... What uh, this uh, shows is uh, that you know, when a person you know, a meditator undertakes you know, the meditation practice and uh, first of all you know, ensures that he or she is well established uh, in uh, virtue and then and then goes on. And to you know, develop you know, concentration, and then the result of this is going to be what? Hmm? Wisdom, yes, indeed, the arising of wisdom, and um, in the same sense when a meditator uh, follows uh, this gradual path of uh, training as uh, all of uh, us are uh, doing here, uh, namely uh, when uh, some initial you know, faith in you know, the Buddha's you know, Dhamma arises upon hearing you know, some you know, Dhamma and also faith in the Buddha arises, you know, then this leads to you know, right of thought, namely thoughts of renunciation. You know, this you know, then leads to you know, the uh, practice or observance of an ethical code of conduct, and uh, yeah, then, like uh, all of you, uh, when one uh, practices uh, the restraint of uh, the senses, and develops mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati sampajanya. Uh, then and uh, furthermore, and you know, overcomes the hindrances, reaches full concentration. Uh, then, uh, one is said you know, to be developing insight. And instead of saying insight, we can also say wisdom, or we can also say you know, insight, knowledge. Now, from all of this, we can conclude that the one of the outcomes of our spiritual training, training in the gradual path, and also and part of this being well established in virtue and training in concentration, well, the outcome of this is the arising of wisdom and there are four things that contribute to the greatness of wisdom. Four factors that are said to lead to the acquisition of wisdom in Bali. The term for this is Nampaña patilabha karana, and nampaña so is wisdom. labha is certainly you know, the, you know, the fruit or the result, and karana is certainly, you know, doing. So, you know, the factors that lead to, you know, the arising of wisdom. Now, the Buddha gives. Uh, these uh, four uh, factors as follows namely association with superior uh, persons, persons who are well established in the Dhamma and so, so when one associates with uh, such a person then uh, one is bound to learn uh, something and when one then also hears the true Dhamma, which is the second factor, and then um, this leads one already a step further. However, just the hearing of the association with the superior person and hearing the true Dhamma is not enough. One also needs to pay attention, careful attention, to what is being said and so so, this then covers uh, three points and uh, the fourth point is uh, probably what Yes, indeed. Practice now. So putting into practice you now what one has heard to practice in accordance with the Dhamma. So these four you know, factors. Are said to lead to the greatness of uh, wisdom, and in a similar discourse, you know, they're said to, to you know, lead to the realization of uh, you know, the fruit of stream entry. So, you know, to uh, the pan and so by saying fruit of stream entry, we can also say you know, the path of stream entry. Now. Another way of expressing this acquisition of wisdom is as follows, namely, based on faith, we then have a desire to practice this then will lead us to aim properly at the arising object of observation and we will also make an effort to send the mind towards that certain predominant object. This will lead to the arising of mindfulness and so, uh, when the mindfulness is quite sustained then this leads to concentration and so they're based on all on concentration in the preceding you know, factors, well wisdom is bound to arise. Now there is a definite existence of a path of purification. And uh, this path of purification, spiritual path of purification, is uh, for instance, described in the Visuddhi Magga, the path of purification which was compiled by Elder Buddha Gossa, a commentator who lived approximately 500 years uh, after uh, the Buddha. And this certain path of purification was well put together based on many statements given by you know, the Buddha himself and recorded in the text. Also this path, path of purification is certainly being mentioned in the Abhidhamma Sangha, which is uh, the companion uh, of uh, the Abhidhamma. It's, it's kind of a key work and, uh, and well your entrance or your, your introduction to uh, the Abhidhamma. And so this path of purification, not only is it theoretically you know, being described in the you know, Manga, but you know, there are meditators who, you know, meditators uh, in the past who've experienced it, and there are meditators in the present who are you know, experiencing it. And most likely there will also be meditators in the future who who are going to experience the same you know, thing. So it is uh, a path of purification you know, that uh, is um, you know, well valid, that was valid in the past, is valid now, and is going to be you know, valid in the future. So something uh, rather uh, reliable, something that has passed you know, the test of uh, time and uh, there are also teachers who guide meditators along uh, this path and uh, this path has been uh, verified by modern uh, science and some of those scientists, to name just a few, are uh, Dr. Daniel Brown and Dr. Jack Engler and uh, uh, of uh, late uh, Professor uh, Richard Davidson has also uh, done uh, some Research on the meditators uh, at the Insight Meditation Society in Barre, Massachusetts, last uh, fall, and so the other you know, researchers uh, have also worked in the same direction. Now. Maybe to uh, elaborate a little bit uh, on one point, namely, there are teachers who guide along this path. What this means is uh, that, that there are Teachers who have received the reports of meditators during interviews for many decades and then have accumulated all this knowledge and then kind of boiled down uh, the essence of how the practice uh, unfolds. Now, in one sense, we can uh, speak of 16 jnanas. Now, jnana is a Pali scriptural term, and some of you may think, my goodness, what does this now mean? And, um, and a jnana is simply an insight knowledge, an intuitive uh, um, knowledge or uh, understanding. And and this path of purification can also you know, be you know, described uh, in a you know, different uh, context uh, or by a different you know, way of classification, namely uh, by way of the seven you know, purifications. And Venerable you know, Buddha Gosa did you know, just you know, this. He you know, based a seven purifications on a discourse known as the Ratnatuna Sutta, the discourse on the relay chariots, and so there is mention of seven stages. And so, then elder, the Buddha Gossa, then. Uh, took those certain seven stages of seven purifications and uh, explained those further in terms of the sixteen insight knowledges and there's a certain overlap there so, an insight knowledge is an, ins- an, 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 an insight knowledge or an intuitive understanding of the intrinsic nature of things and There are, the, there aren't 73 kinds of uh, uh, insight and uh, knowledge or uh, wisdom mentioned in uh, the Patisambhita Magga, namely the path of discrimination. And so, uh, so uh, some of uh, those 73 uh, cover our 16 insight uh, knowledges. And then there are a number of others. And 67 altogether are uh, said to be shared by the disciples and the Buddha and uh, there are six which are not shared by the disciples such as Omniscient Knowledge and uh, uh, a few others that are uh, only limited to uh, a Buddha now the Pani term, wisdom, the Pani term Panya, in English wisdom, is given in the Dhamma-Sanghani by way of a number of synonyms and some of them are as scrutiny or as so, um, discriminative knowledge, or as reflection, or as comparative examination, or as breadth of knowledge, and then wisdom that destroys defilements, and sub- then penetrative wisdom, clear comprehension, wisdom like a guide, wisdom uh, like a sword, <coughs> name in the sense, <coughs> sorry, in the sense in that it's destroying you know, the defilements. And, so, and then wisdom also in the sense of non-bewilderment and investigative knowledge of the Dhamma or simply in investigation of states. Or in the sometimes it's also known as right view. So uh, the, the following Pali terms are the synonyms, namely punya and Jnana, and then amoha, dhamma vijja, and uh, samadeti and vijja, uh, and uh, some of uh, the antonyms in Pali are Awija, which is ignorance, and Anyana is lack of insight knowledge, and moha is certain uh, delusion. Now, the classical fourfold certain definition for you know, wisdom, banya, or insight knowledge is certainly as certainly follows. Namely, in Pali it's given as yata sabhava pati veda lakana, It has the characteristic of of um, penetrating you know, uh, objects according to their intrinsic or essential nature so seeing things according to reality not seeing things according to imagination but um, as they really are and the function of uh, the wisdom is given as illuminating the objective field just uh, like a lamp uh, that is lit in a dark uh, room uh, dispels uh, darkness. And in this sense referring to this lamp, it is said that the light of wisdom, whenever it arises, dispels the darkness of ignorance. Now this needs certain some further explanation. See when we, um, when we, before we start the intensive meditation practice, or at the very beginning, we have very little uh, direct understanding or you know, wisdom into the rising, falling movement of the abdomen, or any other you know, predominant object, of, including uh, the nature of uh, the mind, and. Uh, Uh, when Uh, remembering the first uh, reports that uh, all of you have given or most of you have given at the very beginning of this retreat, then uh, there have been statements like, uh, well the rising arose and the falling movement of the abdomen fell and and at the most maybe there was some expansion on the rising and some contraction on the falling that was it. And uh, by now uh, when I hear your reports uh, uh, they are much more uh, detailed uh, uh, in uh, nature and certainly in the way of describing what's happening in the rising movement and in the falling movement. And uh, again uh, at So before undertaking intensive practice, and uh, at the very beginning, one might not even be in the position of making a distinction between the rising movement and the falling movement. They seem like all the same. Why bother? (laughs) And uh, then... Um, At first, uh, when one then finally manages to get it right and uh, distinguish between the rising movement and the falling movement and uh, also see the specific sensations during the rising movement and falling movement, then gradually, or at that certain point, one might see one rising movement as one continuous uh, movement. And one thinks, well, that's, uh, that's just the way it is. However, upon further practice and further observation, one realizes, no, it's not that way. the, The rising movement actually is a discontinuous movement, and oftentimes it comes in a segmented form. And so, you know, in the case of a pain, a meditator at first you know, sees it as a one compact, solid you know, pain of hardness or you know, maybe you know, tearing or so. And later on, the same meditator may say, no, 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 it's not like this. Uh, it's a pain you know, consisting of a uh, pain which is breaking up and consisting of many you know, parts and you know, particles smaller particles of pain and now, then, as we've seen yesterday during the talk, with regard to the mind, at first we take the mind to be one compact entity, and to make things worse, we even identify with it. We take it as well the seat of the ego, the self, and we get totally attached to it. And then, only in the course of the practice do we gain a much better understanding of uh, the nature of uh, the mind. And so we start to make the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome and so on and so forth. And... Thus, when we compare our wisdom or our understanding or our insight knowledge at the beginning of the retreat with our understanding or insight knowledge maybe halfway through the retreat or towards the end of the retreat, well, there are huge differences there. And gradually, the light of wisdom then dispels the darkness of uh, ignorance now the wisdom is said certainly, to manifest as non-bewilderment, or as absence of certain confusion, and certainly, this has to do you know, with the fact uh, that we just simply see formations according to reality. So you know, we see you know, as they really you know, happen or occur, and you know, thus there is no you know, reason you know, for any you know, surprise. But without Practice, we tend to have a wrongful view, a wrongful perception about objects of this world and so we, just to give you another example, we take formations to be permanent when of course they are not permanent and so, so, when when we've bought a new car then we assume that this new car is going to remain new for at least a couple of years but then unfortunately already five days after the purchase well, someone we have an accident someone drives into our car and it's no longer it can no longer be classified as new now to a meditator this is nothing new and uh, uh, we you know, quickly realize, oh, all formations are you know, impermanent, and so including the car. But a uh, non-meditator may have a hard uh, time with this. Now, the proximate cause for the arising of uh, wisdom is given as uh, wise attention and another proximate cause is uh, given as uh, the unification of the mind uh, in other words, uh, um, uh, concentration, one-pointedness of uh, the mind. Now, there are various kinds of understanding uh, around and uh, the understanding may have or has different aspects And the Visuddhimagga in its fourteenth chapter, paragraph two, clarifies that, or clarifies that what we mean by insight knowledge is um, a knowledge which is associated by wholesome consciousness. So. It's not. It's not kind of technical n- knowledge or n- n- destructive n- type of uh, knowledge. Now, the n- function of uh, wisdom was given to dispel n- n- darkness and, so, n- or n- to illuminate the objective n- field and. So, as there are different kinds of um, insight knowledges around, each and every one of them performs a certain function. And so, when a meditator undertakes the contemplation of uh, impermanence, anicca nupassana, uh, then you know, gradually a direct, very intuitive understanding of impermanence will uh, occur, and you know, this understanding of impermanence uh, then uh, will substitute uh, the or will help to, to abandon the wrongful perception of objects as permanent. So the function here of uh, Anicca Nupasana, contemplation uh, of impermanence, is to abandon you know, the, the wrongful notion of permanence. Likewise the contemplation of uh, unsatisfactoriness or simply the insatisfaction knowledge of, uh, n- n- or the no, that part of uh, uh, the insight knowledge that understands uh, n- dukkha unsatisfactoriness, well, its function is to abandon n- n- the wrongful perception as certain pleasure or happiness. Namely, Sukha Sanya in the Pali language. And likewise, the, that part of insight knowledge that uh, understands anatta, namely the absence of a self, abandons the wrongful perception of an object as possessing a self. And certainly that then is known as Atta Sanya, that wrongful perception. And so. And then, furthermore, uh, a different inside knowledge, which uh, is sometimes called uh, the knowledge of disenchantment, and sooner or later you're going to experience it, uh, its function is to abandon uh, delighting, delighting in uh, formations. And uh, this is what we uh, do almost all the time. We delight in the beauty around here, we delight in the food, we delight in you know, the weather, and so we you know, delight in the company of other meditators, and so on and so forth. And so, um, with further development of our meditation practice, we realize that formations, after all, aren't all that great they are flawed and they're flawed by the universal characteristics of anicca, of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness and of non-self anatta and thus one then no longer takes delight in those certain very formations. Now, of course, there would be more to say here, but this much should, should suffice. And wisdom, as a mental factor, arises in all jhanas, and to some to some extent, there's some amount of wisdom there. Um, and furthermore in path and fruition consciousness. But let me clarify right away the wisdom occurring in the jhanas is not the the pasna type of uh, the wisdom which uh, um, discerns uh, mind and matter and so on. then you know, wisdom also said certain to, to arise in some sense for your beautiful consciousness, and associated you know, with certain uh, knowledge, and in some sense for your resulting consciousness, and in some you know, sense for your functional con- consciousness, together with all beautiful universal mental states. So. Um, In the presence of wisdom, wholesome mental states have a chance to arise. But when wisdom is not there, then only certain wholesome or beautiful mental states will come up. Now, when it comes, or when a meditator undertakes an intensive footnote retreat and is mindful from moment to moment, all day long, and certainly this day after day then these insight knowledges unfold one by one and starting with the first one and then gradually one's practice uh, moves on and then the second insight knowledge will unfold and then the third one and and so on And each of these insight knowledges do not unfold in a haphazard manner, but rather in a very systematic manner. Now, with quite some practice, so not necessarily at the beginning of one's so meditation, one that might suddenly discover that within that there's a certain development within one single insight knowledge or each and every insight knowledge to be more accurate. And so at first, a meditator has to deal with material phenomena because suddenly they tend to be the coarsest. And so, uh, then, uh, as the practice moves on, uh, the feelings of the feeling aggregate may come into the foreground. Naturally, of course, the bodily sensations will still be uh, there, but they're not, you know, at that point, not that much in the foreground and suddenly then again with further practice one realizes that the perceptions as part of the perception aggregate come into the foreground and uh, then after that uh, so things are becoming more refined um, the, the mental formations belonging to you know, the of mental formations, Sankara Khanda uh, they come into the foreground and uh, then finally consciousness itself uh, comes into the foreground although consciousness itself is uh, somewhat difficult to, uh, to see and so. Uh, then we can say that once this development has taken place then um, so when the insight knowledge has matured then the actual final uh, intuition or intuitive insight uh, occurs so each insight knowledge kind of teaches us a new lesson, a different lesson. And you now these certain you know, lessons are graduated from the very you know, simple, the most simple, to increasingly you know, complex and certain you know, profound uh, uh, lessons. Now, if at this point in your meditation practice you don't see you know, this development you know, through the you know, five aggregates within one's insight knowledge, please don't worry about this. You know, don't be too concerned about this. You know, just you know, you take it as a piece of information you know, for general you know, knowledge. But later on, you, know, you know, might uh, see this actually happening in your own meditation practice. Now. Again, um... With uh, some practice, a meditator might uh, realize that within one and the same insight knowledge, the three universal characteristics will occur. So usually first uh, anicca, namely one sees formations as impermanent, then one sees them to be unsatisfactory, dukkha, and then one sees them to lack a self. And so, once one has gone through this and so the insight, you know, the, you know, the lesson, the intuitive lesson has been learned, and then uh, the practice moves on and you know, the next insight knowledge uh, then gradually uh, has to uh, unfold and uh, mature. Until that one too you know, then ends uh, in an intuitive uh, understanding. Now, if a particular insight knowledge has not you know, matured yet, and a meditator is not getting the you know, the point, the relevant point, and then you know, one's practice will you know, kind of you know, stagnate and will go around it, you know, a circle until you know, one you know, gets, until one you know, uh, learns of what needs to be learned. Now, when we undertake intensive meditation practice, then um, our our experiences will be very much influenced by the insight knowledge we happen to be in, and um, in each and every insight knowledge. The rising, falling of the abdomen will manifest in a specific way, and the sitting posture tends to occur in a certain way. Sometimes, just to give you an example, one tends to, one leans like this for a long time, like five minutes or ten minutes, to one side or the other, and that other, at a different point, earlier point in the practice, one might find uh, that one's you know, sitting posture is slouching over and over again, and so on. And so, also, one's certain mindfulness, as described in one of the earlier Dhamma talks, over, uh, over time or in the course of the you know, different insight knowledges, also assumes different qualities. So sometimes it's panoramic, and uh, you know, then it's more one-pointed, and so, and so on. Now, just to you know, relate you know, relate to you, an occurrence, you know, an event happened uh, um, just recently you know, during the you know, June retreat in uh, at the Forest Refuge in Barrie. There was one uh, lady on uh, the retreat who had uh, practiced uh, in the uh, Thai forest tradition uh, for uh, ten, uh, about ten ten years, and. uh, so you know, she was an ardent uh, meditator, and um, up to you know, that point in her uh, meditation practice, she thought that her meditation practice is unique so her way, you know, the, what happens in her you know, practice is unique to her you know, as a person, and for yogi you know, B, it would be again a different you know, development, and for yogi C, again something else, and then when I gave a Dhamma talk on you know, on one of the, you know, the insight knowledges, after the talk, you know, there was a question answer session, just like we have here, and she kind of protested uh, against you know, this saying. She felt you know, pressurized by all these insight knowledges and, uh, and what not and so so, then during the following days we then discussed everything and it became obvious that she she had a wrongful perception of how the practice actually unfolds, she didn't realize that when we meditate there is a certain well there is a certain uh, systematic development or systematic way how uh, uh, these uh, insight knowledges or how uh, wisdom uh, unfolds. And uh, uh, after a while she uh, did uh, uh, accept and uh, actually uh, she saw this then in her own meditation practice and uh, later on there was no more uh, difficulty whatsoever. Now, when we undertake our you know, meditation and go through these you know, different insight knowledges, you know, then some meditators who are you know, on you know, the fast lane, you know, they you know, want to reach the destination, well, quickly and so, you know, then they you know, think, well, why bother with this insight knowledge number three you know, there's dukkha in there, that's not for me I only want to have sukkha experiences, needing pleasant experiences, so let's skip that one, (laughs) um, what do you think, will this work, Uh, it will not work, and basically we have to you know, go through all of these insight knowledges there's only one in the, among the middle you know, insight knowledges one out of you know, or there's there're three there and you know, so called dukkha and jnanas, but it's different different from what i mentioned just earlier on and um, if one experiences one out of those, Mahasi you know, Sada says this is good enough, um, but uh, experiencing two out of three is better, and three out of three is uh, the best. But even if one experiences only one out of three, later on one will have to catch up with the uh, remaining two. They'll come up uh, no matter what, even if one tries to avoid them. And and then then there is a really fascinating aspect regarding the development of uh, wisdom. And... we can, we can make the following statement that no matter what the object is that we observe, the Dhamma is there. All of the Dhamma is there and so so there's a Chinese uh, expression that is uh, used uh, or principle that is uh, applied very much in an area such as uh, foot reflexology and uh, the principle is the whole contains the part and the part contains the whole. So by massaging a particular area of the foot, one then massages a particular organ uh, inside uh, the body. And uh, so uh, the uh, the foot uh, is or the two feet uh, are uh, representative uh, of uh, the entire uh, body and likewise in the meditation practice. And from a modern, and a scientific point of view, a theory that best conforms with what happens in our actual practice is the so-called fractal theory and uh, one of the proponents of the fractal theory was Mandelbrot if I'm not mistaken Benoit Mandelbrot uh, born in Poland later on he moved to um, to France and uh, he very much developed this fractal theory And what the fractal theory is saying is that the part is included in the whole. Now, to give you a really nice illustration which will make things clear right away. You've all, you all know what a head of cauliflower looks like. And so we go to the market, we buy one, and we have it. And uh, we have it right uh, there. So it is uh, it has kind of uh, like uh, this kind of a shape, and uh, so like a half almost like a half moon on on, on top. And then when we uh, break off one part from this head of cauliflower, then what do we see?
1: Head
0: of a little head of cauliflower, what was the other comment, something there? I said a
1: smaller
0: version. Ah, a smaller version of the same thing. Yes, yes. yes. there you go. And if we then break off an even smaller part from that so the first part that we broken have broken off, then what will we see? The same. Again, the same, right. And the same thing happens in the meditation practice and so so when we uh, take an object like uh, you know, the uh, rising and uh, you know, falling movement of uh, you know, the abdomen, and uh, we observe it at uh, you know, the surface, and then we'll see it, you know, we'll see maybe Anicca, dukkha, and Anatta in a somewhat superficial manner. However, if we then go into one aspect of uh, you know, this rising falling movement, and uh, let's say the Anicca part, then, in this, we can again see Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. So, the three universal characteristics. Or, a different example, um, we take a pain and at first it looks like one solid pain, and then you know, when we observe more carefully, we see you know, that it is composed of a number, sometimes a great number or multitude, of smaller you know, pains, of which are you know, similar in nature. So the big pain is kind of a hard pain, and the smaller pains are all smaller uh, hard-type pains, and. Um, in a wider sense, when we you know, take when we take there may be some uh, a sensation of hardness as an object as our object of observation in the big toe we can then um, focus on this for a longer period of time and everything will be there. All of the sixteen insight knowledges will be there all of the three universal characteristics will be there and uh, the five aggregates we can see right uh, there with regards uh, to the hardness in our big toe and we can also see the four noble truths uh, there. Or, we can take uh, some uh, itching sensation somewhere in the face and uh, focus on that and so, you know, to make that our main object. Again, we can go through all of these 16 insight knowledges you know, just by using that uh, uh, itching sensation in the face. And again, the three universal characteristics will be there. Everything uh, will be there. So the notion uh, no, of Thing or the notion that the Dhamma is contained only and so or accessible only by you know, contemplating you know, the in and out breathing at the nostrils, or you know, by you know, only doing the rising falling movement of the abdomen, is a wrong. You know, a wrongfully perceived notion. Um, But rather, whatever the object may be, the Dhamma is uh, there, all of it, without uh, any uh, exception. Or to make it you know, even more you know, obvious, if uh, we were to say, "Okay, you know, I don't want to bother observing physical formations. Uh, it's a burden to have the burden. It's a burden to have the body, and so, you know, then it's an even greater burden to observe these bodily sensations all the time." So <laughs> let me let me make things uh, or life a little bit you know, the easier. By limiting myself to the observation of mental states. This is much more fascinating. Well, one could do so and um, if one were to do so then all of the 16 insight knowledges would be there and uh, one would be able to see the three universal characteristics with regard to those same mental states and the four noble truths uh, will also uh, unfold. So in the end the object that you're observing doesn't matter, you know, the Dhamma is uh, uh, ever present. Now when it comes to you know, the unfolding of uh, the wisdom, now then um, it's proper to assume you know, that this uh, wisdom unfolds in a gradual you know, way at least as long as one is going through you know, the insight knowledges now the situation is a different one uh, when it comes you know, to the realization of path and fruition knowledge this is a matter of just a few mind moments so extremely you know, short but uh, in order to get there, in order to uh, get to this rather instantaneous instantaneous um, uh, realization experience, we need to go through uh, you know, this or travel along this gradual path. Now, when it comes to uh, the uh, mental factor of uh, wisdom, then just like all of the other uh, mental factors, especially the wholesome ones, it comes uh, in degrees. So, uh, wisdom uh, comes all, or can be found uh, ranging from a very initial weak type of wisdom all the way to a penetrative, discriminative uh, wisdom, a wisdom uh, that uh, understands or penetrates uh, uh, something as profound as the Four Noble Truths. And so so it ranges from minor wisdom, like we experience it occasionally during daily life, uh, to uh, extremely deep levels of uh, wisdom and when it comes to our gaining of wisdom um, then we can say as we travel along this path towards stream entry, our wisdom will still be somewhat uh, uh, at the surface. We're touching basically only the tip of the iceberg. However, when our practice goes deeper and beyond that first experience of stream entry then everything becomes wider every aspect of wisdom that we've gained so far gets much wider and deeper so it is as if we're then reaching into deeper levels in the iceberg and uh, what is uh, helpful to know from a meditator's point of view is that frequently a new aspect of uh, wisdom is uh, no, no, well uh, gained um, by observing the rising falling movement of the abdomen or or sometimes it happens that a new aspect of wisdom is or becomes obvious in the walking meditation. And then gradually you know, this understanding spreads to other objects. Then one might certainly see you know, the same thing, the same aspect of wisdom with regard to the seeing process, hearing process, smelling process, or one might see the same thing you know, with regard to some bodily pain or with regard to some uh, mental state. So it starts oftentimes with a primary object, namely the rise and fall of the abdomen, or you know, sometimes uh, if one's walking meditation is quite advanced, then it starts with that. Now, with regard n- to n- wisdom, n- the Buddha has said, and I'm quoting uh, from Anguttara Nikaya 4, 143, as n- n- translated by n- Bhikkhu Bodhi and published uh, in uh, his recent n- publication in the Buddha's uh, words. There are, O monks, or nuns, or lay meditators, these four, lights. What for? And what do you think? <laughs> so, start with the very obvious.
1: Huh?
0: Oh, the noble truth. Oh, you're right away heading. Well, we start with the simple things. The light of the Sun. And then, once we have that, it is easy to guess the second one. Then there's the light of of the moon. Yes, indeed. And then as number three, we have the light of... Please don't tell me incandescent lights or so. (laughs) Those didn't exist at the time of the Buddha. But... Stars... Oh, not so bad. Well, he doesn't mention that here. <laughs> fire. Huh? Fire. Ah, very good. Indeed, fire. So, there are, O oh meditators, these four lights. What for? The light of the sun, the light of the moon, the light of fire, the, and the light of wisdom. Of these four lights, the light of wisdom is supreme. And so so, this then gives you an idea of uh, the significance of wisdom as a quality that we as human beings need to develop. And so, remember from the very outset of our very first talk uh, at the beginning of the retreat, Two aims were mentioned there, namely the development of true you know, true knowledge or true wisdom and what else? Vijja and Vimuti in Pali. True knowledge leads to what? liberation there you go and so liberation the gaining of liberation would not be possible without you know, the development of uh, wisdom so these two sort of things go hand in hand and, and thus uh, when we undertake a retreat like this the development of wisdom or insight knowledge is certain you know, first is foremost now um, since we've been practicing uh, together already you know, for a couple of days, it can be safely assumed uh, that uh, you know, our meditators here uh, have had at least some access um, or some understanding of uh, wisdom, or gained some aspect of uh, wisdom, and. So, The way this happens is as follows, namely when a meditator keeps the you know, precepts and uh, then restrains uh, the senses you know, slows down you know, spends the day in silence you know, uh, uh, and then starts observing the you know, rising falling movement of the abdomen and other you know, predominant objects you know, then um, then gradually the meditator you know, will you know, discern. Uh, or or sorry, A meditator will come in contact with the you know, rising and falling, which means you know, he or she will start you know, sensing you know, some sensations there. And the next step then is making the distinction between the rising and the falling, seeing that these are two different uh, uh, phenomena and with two different uh, qualities. And then meditators will also report, they oftentimes report, that there is a gap between the rising, the end of the rising and the next falling, and a gap between the end of the falling and the next rising movement. And so when... A meditator then continues to practice, gradually the mental objects become predominant and among those, first of all, wandering mind and sloth and torpor. Remember those first few days when you were suffering from frequent wandering mind and dullness of the mind. And then, um, not so long after this, the five, uh, the hindrances come into play, and uh, the five hindrances of uh, the sense desire, of ill will, of you know, sloth and torpor, of restlessness and remorse, and of, of uh, skeptical doubt, and the. But the very arising of you know, the hindrances is actually um, a wonderful you new know, thing. And the reason for this is Uh, that uh, one uh, for one thing learns to overcome these hindrances and furthermore also gains familiarity with those mental states. And so so prior to these the mental states uh, are somewhat unfamiliar territory now at least uh, one gains some familiarity uh, with the And uh, once one has overcome them, one's concentration you know, turns or becomes certain, uh, strong, and uh, then uh, some wholesome mental states arise frequently in the form of calmness, meditators will say there's peacefulness, and uh, frequently meditators will say There's clarity of the mind and some even report gladness and joy. Gladness and joy over the fact that the five hindrances have been successfully overcome and also because the pains and aches that previously were giving or causing so much trouble have been overcome. Now in the presence of uh, some clarity of mind and purity of mind, then all the necessary conditions are you know, present for the first intuitive insight or for the first lesson you know, to arise. And after a couple of days, Four, five, six, seven days of intensive practice, a meditator realizes that after all, all that exists in this fathom-long body of ours are you know, just two basic categories of objects, namely, who knows? and me? Pleasant and unpleasant. And more pri- <laughs> pleasant. <laughs> that is. Well, it's not what you're saying is correct, but that's not what I'm heading at. Mind and body. But mind and body. There you go. And so, and so, mentality, materiality, and mentality. All there is are material phenomena and mental phenomena. And so, um. Upon deep observation, is there a sense of I or not? Is there a sense of self or not? You shake the head. Is correct. There is not. Now this doesn't mean uh, that at times uh, the notion of a self still comes up, no doubt. But at least, uh, at least for a few moments or so, a meditator realizes during uh, uh, the deep meditation that all there is uh, uh, are just uh, those physical and mental formations. And so, so there's no being there, no no individual, no no self, no ego, no, no um, man, nor no woman, and so, when. Uh, and there have been, uh, or there has been at least to my knowledge, uh, one meditator, upon realizing you know, this first uh, insight knowledge, the person cried. And you know why? Well... Because of this loss the person was you know, felt sorrow over having to let go this of the self. The person was so attached to you know, the notion of a self that seeing that it's not present at all times meant uh, you know, a big uh, loss, thus the tears. But uh, This loss seems like, uh, only seems like uh, a major loss, but in the end it's a loss for uh, the better. And with this particular, first uh, the insight knowledge, the knowledge of discerning mind and matter, a meditator will also come to see the an interdependence you know, of mentality and materiality so The body by itself cannot uh, um, survive. The mind by itself can also not survive. So if there were only the mind, then we would have all sorts of impulses to do this, to do that, to say this, to say that, but we wouldn't have the materiality to to do and to say. However, if we were to consist only of body without a mind, then again we would be in a rather poor shape. Now, the author or compiler of the Visuddhimagga has given a wonderful uh, illustration for this particular interdependence between mind and matter. And it's that of a man born blind and a stool-crawling cripple. No. Both of these wanted to go on a journey, wanted to reach a certain destination. But you can imagine, the man born blind can't see and doesn't uh, therefore doesn't know where to go, and the stool-crawling cripple, so who's holding on to some stool, uh, can't has eyes to see with, but uh, no proper legs to walk with. So he too can't reach. Uh, no, he's certain destination, but when they get together, and then the um, man born blind says, "Who can walk?" come, and says to the stool-crawling cripple, come, friend, climb on my back, and sit on my shoulders, and then, together, we can uh, travel, you know, or we can you know, do this uh, journey, and reach our you know, destination. And this is what they do. And uh, now thus, the stool-crawling cripple climbs onto you know, the shoulders of uh, the ma- man born blind, and uh, then the cripple, uh, gives, uh, the cripple who can see gives instructions, you know, well, you know, leave the right, take the left, and then leave the left, take the right. And in this way they reach their destination. Now, when it comes to this very first insight knowledge, there is more to it. And an aspect that we've discussed over the last few Dhamma talks, once in a while, namely, this ability to discern between wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. It first arises during the first insight knowledge. So, uh, before this, a meditator may not necessarily realize what wholesomeness is and what unwholesomeness is, and what wholesome mental states are and unwholesome mental states are. Um, However, when one starts practicing, then this becomes obvious. And another major benefit of uh, the practice is, of this particular insight knowledge, is that a meditator discovers the intentions, namely that every bodily, Oh, and a verbal act is preceded by a mental intention, so the mental intention to say something or to do something now. Many people are not aware of those intentions, especially young people, and thus they display a rather impulsive uh, behavior. And And so, um. As soon as some you know, thought or um, thought or an intention crosses the mind to you know, do something, immediately they think you know, they have to do it. Or the same thing: you know, as soon as some thought arises, okay, let me say this or that, even if it may hurt the other person. Well, here uh, you know, she would just say whatever comes up. And so much damage can be done uh, in, or is done in this way. A meditator gains a tremendous advantage over a non meditator in the sense that he or she tunes in or learns to tune into those intentions. And then being mindful of an intention, being aware of an intention, then has that you know, moment or two to decide whether or not to act on the intention, uh, on, on, on the intention. So if the intention turns out to be unwholesome, one can you know, briefly stop and then decide, okay, I'm not going to act on this. Or, if the intention is wholesome, then one realizes, okay, there's nothing wrong with this, let's go ahead. And so, so discovering intentions then brings certain about a tremendous freedom from impulsive behavior. And so, when you uh, read uh, about certain you know, prisoners, or you, know, you, you know, even uh, have direct certain you know, contact, and then you, know, you will find that um, oftentimes. You now prisoners are in prison because you know, they never learned you know, to be mindful of you know, to recognize and to be mindful of their intentions and uh, so um, easily based on some you know, misunderstanding some uh you know, yeah, well some understanding some uh, wrongful you know, word or so uh, some quarrel ensues and you know, then um you know a person gets harmed and, so, and then one you know, a person another person ends up or the uh, culprit ends up in prison Now maybe this much you know, regarding you know, the you know, first you know, insight knowledge There would be much more to say, but we just don't have you know, the time now the second uh, insight knowledge uh, that occurs uh, during the meditation practice is known as the uh, knowledge of discerning cause and effect, Bacchaya Parigaha and uh, this knowledge is basically about discerning uh, cause and effect. Realizing that those same bodily and mental formations are connected by uh, cause and effect. And they do not, or formations do not arise in a haphazard manner or um, um, caused by, or are they you know, caused through you know, some uh, supreme being. And when we meditate, we see for ourselves that we see for ourselves again and again those certain causal links. And among the different causal links that meditators have related over the last few days, I'll just relate a few um namely let's say some Anger arises in the mind, and you know, this, uh, and then the meditator finds you know, that uh, you know, this uh, gets accompanied by a tensing up of uh, you know, the body, or uh, it may alter the anger may also you know, lead to you know, well an acceleration of the heartbeat, or it may also lead to you know, a flushing of uh, you know, the face, or it may you know, lead to you know, well an increased uh, perspiration and uh, the clenching of uh, one's uh, face so that would be one example and so another you know, example you know, and very you know, common example is you know, that when a pain has arisen in one's certain body somewhere and one observes you know, this pain, you know, then um, then sooner or later some aversion might you know, develop towards certain you know, other pain. Naturally, you know, the aversion doesn't arise without a cause, it arises you know, because of uh, you know, the increasing you know, pain. And so and then, you know, as one keeps observing, you know, the pain it might grow in intensity. And you know, then, as a result of this, uh, one or, you know, the intention to change one's posture you know, might uh, arise. So again, we have a connection here between the intention to change one's posture and uh, the pain. And uh, then what uh, else another, you know, another you know, causal link may be, um, it's getting warmer and warmer in the hall and you know, then the body starts sweating and you know, as a result of this you know, then one might consider you know, taking off a piece of uh, cl- clothing. And uh, on the other hand, if it's uh, outside early in the morning, it's cold, and uh, then this uh, may lead to a shivering of uh, the body, and this in turn may lead a person to then wear some extra clothes. And then I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, you know, we mentioned you know, how you know, the mental factor of manasikara, attention, is uh, uh, responsible for choosing the next object of observation. So if we're sitting you know, there at home and uh, uh, watching TV and having dinner and uh, um, sitting on a sofa, and um, yeah, that's it. then, the mind or consciousness will have to choose the next object, and it is manasikara. Then, then determines which object or what kind of consciousness occurs next. Whether it's going to be, it is going to be a seeing consciousness, or hearing consciousness, or smelling consciousness, and so on. Now... The second insight knowledge is important you know, to you know, gain it right and it's also important in terms of uh, uh, content and uh, it is one of uh, you know, the points in our meditation practice you know, that you know, shows us how formations uh, are you know, linked and it shows us clearly that things are you know, not happening uh, in a haphazard manner so our meditation practice itself is not unfolding in in a haphazard manner, and also when we experience certain things, then um, there's always always certain causes are there. Now this then leads us to the end of our dhamma talk. Let me conclude with a dhammapada verse, namely 282, that says, "Indeed." wisdom is born of meditation. Without meditation, wisdom is lost. Knowing this twofold path of, of gain and loss of wisdom, one should conduct oneself so that wisdom may increase. And this is it for tonight. Amen. Now, do you have any questions or comments or is there a need for some clarifications? Yes?
1: Could you, um, again, mind um, explaining why one would not have part of a program, for example, for meditators once a week um, with Samatha, with the Vipassana? You mentioned that you wouldn't recommend combining them
0: Wait a minute, that I would recommend. I wouldn't. W- wouldn't, yes indeed. And so why, why have a program?
1: Uh, well, it's, there is actually a program uh, right now in Toronto uh. where there is the Samatha at the beginning, uh. walking meditation uh-huh. and Vipassana. So I would like to carry this wisdom that you have um, over to the teachers uh, for discussion
0: but I would like, if possible, to have a little more clarity on it. Uh, well, um, let's see, in the way we practice Vipassana uh, meditation here, um, the concentration develops quite naturally out of uh, you know, the observation of the predominant uh, objects. In some, you know, so and observing the rising falling movement of the abdomen and uh, observing pains and aches as they are occurring and uh, the mental states and objects at the same stores and so on you know, from moment to moment to moment, you now these you know, requires certain concentration and uh, you know, as we go on the concentration gets certain stronger and stronger and so and then it certain just certain works certain very you know, or you know, the concentration that arises is strong enough you know, to you know, then uh, work together with uh, the mental factors of mindfulness uh, and, and and other mental factors so that wisdom uh, arises so in the Mahasi tradition of the uh, Vipassana meditation, there is no need whatsoever you know, to you know, you know, practice samatha you know, before you know, doing one's uh, the Vipassana. Uh, no, the, you know, the development of, Vipassana, of, you know, of concentration is kind of built into, uh, into the instructions and into one's meditation, and the type. The type of medita- the type of concentration that occurs during the past meditation, is known as kanika samadhi, namely momentary concentration.
1: And you mentioned
0: last night that uh, the samatha brings forth different uh, knowledges? No, no, no. It brings forth uh, uh, jhanas, the absorptions. Oh, okay. uh, no. Now, maybe to add uh, to this, mm, there are, of course, different approaches around, and uh, what Goenka, in uh, uh, his tradition of uh, Vipassana, is doing based on uh, the, uh, uh, the instructions given by Neri Sado and Uberkin. He will instruct so, you know, the meditators to do anapanasati for you know, three days in a row, asking meditators to focus you know, the attention or the, you know, focus the attention on um, you know, the in and out breathing, and just to keep the mind there. So basically, this is some, uh, this is not to develop you know, wisdom, but rather to develop you know, concentration once some amount of concentration has certainly developed, uh, then the instruction will be given, okay, now do this certain body scan, or start observing uh, objects uh, starting at the uh, tip of the head and going all the way down to uh, to the, the toes. Top of the head to the tip of the toes. Yes, now, next question. Yes, Sir Mac.
1: Sir, from last night we were talking. You were talking about metal stakes. Yes. And you said there are sixty-two of them, right, of some number. <laughs> <laughs> You're adding ten. <laughs> well, I don't need to know the number. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> but then you started talking about. Um, <coughs> lust and the absence of lust, anger and oh. absence of anger, delusion and the absence of delusion. Yes. I'm
0: sorry, I, well, how does it go together? What's the point of it? Are they mental states? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, not all, the greed, and the greed is a mental state, and the anger is a mental state, delusion is also a mental state, you No, know? and related to greed is lust. You know, greed and lust near Yudna and Gergna the same in essence. And so uh, then we have uh, those uh, three you know, destructive uh, emotions of greed, hatred, and certain delusion. And you know, there exists also you know, the opposites, uh, the opposing or the opposite wholesome uh, mental state: uh, states of non-greed, of non-hatred, and of non-delusion and so uh, consciousness so there's a moment of consciousness and sometimes you know, sometimes this consciousness will be accompanied by lust so that's one case and then you know, at another point there's a moment of consciousness and in this case it's uh, uh, accompanied by non lust non lust or non greed so does this help Is is consciousness a mental state? No, 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 no. That's what I uh, tried to explain last night. Two other ones. Oh, please, you have to, Mike, you have to make a a distinction between consciousness, no? which just is conscious of some object and uh, a variety of 52 different mental states or mental factors and so a moment of consciousness will arise and this then will be accompanied by a number of mental factors so these two are kind of working together, just like in the case of an engine, a car engine. Uh, there'll be uh, there. There'll be what do you call that?
1: Uh, there as well. Huh? What you're saying is that when one thing is there, the other thing is.
0: There. Yes, 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 right. So to an engine, there are different parts there. No. So likewise, so the mind there are two different parts, and they they have to work together in order to function well. Does that uh, I think it's now clear? Well, lust, greed, greed, or the absence of greed are are
1: those what you mean by the factors? Yes. And the consciousness is the awareness of the whole process.
0: Consciousness, no, 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 no. Consciousness, consciousness is just performing a very—it is not which is conscious of uh, of an object. But being conscious here is to be understood in a very rudimentary uh, sense, very basic sense of just taking in an object and not more than this. And the mental factors, um, a number of the mental factors. And they perform further functions uh, with regard to, you know, to you know, the object you know, so for instance you know, the mental factor of feeling you know, will then determine the feeling tone to the experience and the mental factor of perception will contribute how we perceive the object or, or you know, um, how we interpret the object And then, and then let me see. And then the mental factor of concentration. It will ensure that the associated mental states are all unified and all working together on that object. It's kind of like. You, know, you have an object in the middle, and uh, it's being uh, worked on you know, by a number of different uh, mental factors. And consciousness itself uh, is certainly the well, the most basic. Uh, uh, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, like the foundation, or so. Then the greed is just
1: greed is one of those
0: factors. Yes, indeed. Then,
1: okay, I think I got
0: it now. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. So Lynn, what next? Uh, yes, uh, who, who else? Way in the bank. Way in the bank. You can see where you are. Yeah. So Lynn please just uh, raise your oh yeah. yeah oh.
1: Okay. I had a question about the business.
0: About the weight in us. In
1: each moment of consciousness there is a rising pleasant
0: or unpleasant or neutral, but our experience isn't just pleasant or unpleasant, there's degrees of pleasant or unpleasant, I was wondering if you could explain that. No, naturally, no, naturally there'll be no, degrees certain no, to, no, to this, no, to pleasant and certain unpleasant, sometimes highly unpleasant, sometimes just a little bit uh, unpleasant. Uh, no, And so, like with the other mental factors, they all come in degrees, but the, uh, the essence is the same. You know, so, you know, for, an, let's say, a slightly unpleasant feeling, somewhat unpleasant feeling and very unpleasant feeling, the essence is still unpleasant feeling. And the you know, same thing for, you know, for a pleasant certain feeling and for a neutral feeling. And um
1: <laughs> and so so the degree th- is contained within the moment of consciousness and may be repeated, but that moment of consciousness has a certain degree of pleasant or unpleasant. It just comes with that moment.
0: It comes with that moment, and uh, the degree of the you know, pleasantness or unpleasantness will also you know, depend on you know, the other um, predominant mental states. And so. Um, let's say when much wisdom is there or let's say much equanimity is there then uh, there tends, there is a tendency that these certain feelings are somewhat milder not not as pronounced and so what I'm trying to say is um, in some insight knowledges Uh, so levels of wisdom or so, Uh, the uh, accompanying feeding to an experience can be very pronounced, and at other points it's certainly maybe not that pronounced. Then, yes, Nicola. Um, If
1: mindfulness is present, and
0: there's an awareness that mindfulness is, say, dull or sharp, or whatever. Is it mindfulness that knows that mindfulness is dull or sharp, or is it consciousness that knows that... Ah, this is a good question, yeah. Well, I suppose it's uh, mindfulness itself. Mindfulness, uh, the mental factor of uh, mindfulness reflects on itself and uh, then realizes uh, that that it's dull or sharp. No, the mind, the mind has this, uh, uh, well, rather intriguing ability to reflect on itself. No, and that's just the way it is.
1: So consciousness isn't the knowing of states.
0: Wait, 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 please. When you speak of consciousness, rather say consciousness is conscious of um, instead of saying knowing. Because knowing, it's wisdom that knows.
1: And wisdom falls under the mental factors, not...
0: Yes, indeed. Indeed.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to understand.
0: It's not the same. So, um, there are differences here between... Um, between consciousness and certain, uh, then uh, perception, and certain, uh, then uh, wisdom, and uh, consciousness is the most basic way of uh, being conscious. Uh, so it's just this taking in of an uh, of an object, and so perception in relation to to an object means perceiving its qualities or its signs as in in, in terms of the form or shape or color and this or that feature. And whereas wisdom knows uh, you know, well the um, you know, the three universal characteristics, and so, uh, and so what uh, whatever and, so, uh, and so knows an object maybe as you know, arising, passing away, or as dissolving, or this or that. So consciousness is—is is it just like
1: wakefulness or?
0: Non-wakefulness, is it as simple as that? You can say like like this, yes. Um, Consciousness is certainly somewhat uh, active, no? Uh, Active and, uh, um (laughs) well, wait wait, wait a minute. This may be not quite correct. There are various kinds of... uh, or consciousness can perform you know, different uh, you know, functions, many you know, different functions, and so like I said, uh, all that consciousness is doing is taking in an object, so being conscious of uh, you know, the presence of an, of an object, and then uh, one type of consciousness is the so-called which is the life continuum and that is a rather passive type of consciousness and it's the type of consciousness that occurs like uh, during sound sleep but uh, it also occurs during our waking hours when no predominant object is impinging on the same stores so when we're in a state of you know, kind of like you know, daydreaming or even a little bit more than this. Not really aware of anything. No. That's
1: one kind
0: and was there another kind? Oh, there's lots of... No, no there's death consciousness and there's rebirth-linking consciousness and, uh, and so on and so forth.
1: Okay. just the second
0: Okay. Okay. And then Alan...
1: Could it be safe to use the metaphor for uh, most common consciousness as, as, as a mirror, that it just simply reflects what is there, it doesn't do anything other than just it sees but it's, it's like a mirror? Mm.
0: Well, maybe we can say like this, eh? But there's no, no deeper, no deeper knowing there.
1: A mirror does not know. Eh, right. You just, you just, whatever from the mirror
0: has to be eh, mirror. Yeah, right. Yeah, so then, uh, uh, we can say like you propose. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, anything else? Yes, uh, Steve.
1: Maybe building on on these last two. For instance, when one is driving a car, but not knowing that one is turning to the left, Mm -hmm. one is involved in something else, but conscious enough so one doesn't drive off the road. Or how would you just dis- maybe another way to ask the question is how would you distinguish the, what you're
0: how you're using the word consciousness from the Freudian categories of conscious, unconscious, and preconscious? Oh. <laughs> Well, what do you mean? Oh, nee, good. Okay. So the answer, you know, the answer to these uh, is, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, there are no two consciousnesses. There is only one at a time, and you know, that of Freudian you know, um, understanding of consciousness at the surface, and then you know, there's the unconscious part to the mind, and then there's what you call the pre-conscious. You no. Know? Um, in Buddhist Abhidhamma, this is not accepted you know, because there's only, and so, like I explained, to, I think, yeah, yesterday, last night, to you, you know, there's only one you know, moment of consciousness occurring at a time. You know? And so, that moment of consciousness will take in one object and not two or three. And so you don't have two or three moments of you know, consciousness. Consciousness is you know, operating simultaneously. You know. However, having said all, all of these, you know, uh, In meditation, we can distinguish between uh, objects that uh, are uh, at first easily accessible in the mind and others that are accessible through mindfulness only later on with more and more mindfulness. So things like deep levels of ignorance or deep levels of uh, restlessness and so on, um, they're way down uh, in the mind. No, but in Buddhism we don't say nothing of the unconscious. No, just by way of definition. (coughs)
1: Okay,
0: then there was one more. Yes, uh, John?
1: If a meditator would have an experience of um, where the predominant quality of it was an experience of uh, the predominant thing was the knowing. So, as if the knowing uh, of objects, that the objects or the the characteristics of the objects kind of fell away, and it was just knowing we we're knowing itself. What would that be?
0: Wait a minute. It was mean, not knowing what the object, knowing the object itself.
1: Uh, yeah, just sort of like knowing. It's sort of like knowing knowing itself. I mean, it's just a sense of. Um, That there's objects being known, but you're no longer noticing so much what the objects are, it's just a sense of knowing because...
0: Oh, this is, yeah, sure enough, yeah, 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 so this is similar to what Nicola asked, whether mindfulness can be mindful of itself, no, so the way, the way this happens is, uh, most likely, and then you have an object, no? and so then there is uh, no, no, knowledge of this object, so wisdom no, with regard to this object. And then the next moment of consciousness in which wisdom will arise again, will, might take that earlier moment of no, wisdom or no, knowledge as an object and then know that this is possible. What is. Yeah, yeah, sure enough.
1: <laughs> no, it's just
0: knowing, knowing the knowing. Knowing the knowing. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that an element of
0: memory that comes into... Yeah, right. And, and that's uh, all the, you know, the element of memory is performed uh, by you know, the you know, mental factor of sanya, uh, sanya, which is perception. So um, part of perception is you know, recognition, and that includes a memory. No, so the mind, yeah, you know, the mind is just. Or oh, the mental factor of uh, no, uh, of wisdom or knowledge is taking uh, an, another mental object uh, do, do as an object or a mental event as an object of observation and in this in, in as you're you know, you know, proposing you know the previous knowing so uh, no, the mind knows that it has known or that it did know now... And the mind is flexible, <laughs> I however, uh, or I'll give you another example, something that certain meditations once in a while you know, experience is actually not that pleasant, namely, um, because of some condition one gets into fear. You know? And then, uh, in the course of this, what may happen is um, one develops fear of fear, so it becomes kind of a double fear or a triple fear, and this gets dangerous. And then one needs to cut it. No, getting afraid of uh, you know, falling into fear. I don't know. Okay it's already 8.23 we're approaching 2 hours so maybe this much for tonight, more tomorrow